it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with author Bernice Lerner about her book, All the Horrors of War, straight ahead. Do, do you and your, your mother um, feel compelled to talk about this time period because of um, these things we hear about uh, occasionally in the news about... Um, revisionist history and and holocaust deniers and that sort of thing there are a lot of people speaking out to keep that those stories uh fresh and alive i think that's what motivated her partly to speak publicly yes yes and in the process of of researching and putting together the the information because this isn't just simply you know a, a a Q&A with your mom about her experiences, you know, during World War II. But you went through, um, uh, what's his, I, I can't believe this guy, this doctor's name is Hugh Hughes. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, just a, a little bit, uh, a little bit different. Um, but he had uh, papers and journals and, and diaries and things that you could go through. Is he still alive? No, he died in 1973. So I actually, in researching him, it was a race against time for me to even meet and speak with people who knew him. Because I I met his daughter and I I interviewed his son over the phone and they died not, they died a few years later. I've been working on this project for 15 years. So I was lucky that I got some people and some of his friends who still knew him while they were alive and could speak about him. And yes, I, I went to London several times and went deep into the archives, um, both the Imperial War Museum and the National Archives and the places that housed the Glenn Hughes papers. And he had seven boxes, six, seven boxes of his own personal um, papers that he gave and albums and lots to look through was that a little bit eerie um after having spoken with your mother and and heard some of these uh recollections to then read about that same time period from from a completely different perspective no it wasn't eerie at all it was 
It was fascinating. And when you're a researcher, it's like you're doing this <laughs> detective work. It was actually, yeah, you really, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn about him. I wanted to learn about things from his perspective. I wanted to learn who was this man. What did he bring to the experience? What was his background like? And what were his personal endowments? And what had he seen of war? And how did he go about making the decisions he did? And what did it do to him? And how did it change him? And how did it influence some of the choices he made after the war? So I was, became very fascinated by him and who he was. Is it um, unusual for a, a British doctor to have been in the role that he was when it came to uh, liberating that camp? Very unusual. The whole thing was very unusual. I mean, he was he was became very high up in the British Second Army. He first started out as a head, deputy director of medical services for one of the uh, corps, the, the Eighth Corps of the Army, and he was making all the planning for the D-Day invasion. He was figuring out how best to evacuate the wounded to London and to England and how he was going to treat them and how he was going to organize the whole medical system and the transport and the medicine and getting enough blood. And he was concerned with all of these things. And then as there were battles in Normandy, he was, you know, uh, requisitioning hospitals and, oh, doing a lot of research on where they could place the wounded and bury the dead. And he was doing all, all this and he was going through. I have a map at the front of the book that shows how he you know, where he was, where the men were training and then how they um, traveled from France up through Belgium and Holland and into Germany. And then all, then the um, British are approached by the Germans and the Germans in an unprecedented war move handed over this big concentration camp, Bergen-Belsen. So he was it was a shock. It was a shock for him to come in. I mean, nobody, he hadn't planned on being a liberator. So it was, the whole thing was very shocking and surprising and daunting, daunting to step into this situation. It wasn't like anything anyone had seen, even after the worst battles. It was, it was he said, his quote was, I have seen all the horrors of war, but I have never seen anything to touch it. Because yeah. Um, and yeah. were the were the camps being opened somewhat simultaneously, or were these among the first to discover that there were these camps, or confirm that there were because they had been talked about already? They were, yeah. Um, they were not all opened simultaneously. It happened all different times. It started in the winter of 1945. It started even earlier. Depending where the liberators were coming from, the Russians from the east, the Allies from the west, and what camps did they stumble upon? And the war wasn't even over when Bergen-Belsen was liberated because Bergen-Belsen was liberated on April 15th and the war ended on May 8th. So it was one of the first ones um, for on the on the um, side of the British and the Americans. The Russians came to Auschwitz, they liberated earlier, in end of January. So it was as the Allies were traveling, they were coming upon these places, these 
shocking places. And there were there were much far fewer people. There were maybe seven thousand people left in Auschwitz about ten days before the liberation. They were put on a the inmates who could walk were sent on a death march, <clears throat> a death march going west. Away, you know, the Germans were trying to march the prisoners away from the liberating armies. They didn't want Hitler did not want a single Jew to fall alive in the hands of the Allies. So that was the mandate to get them to march them, death march. It was really chaotic at the end of the war. But Bergen-Belsen was the only camp that was actually handed over to the Allies. Um, and the prisoners in the camp, I mean, they were hoping, but, I mean, there were rumors that they were going to blow up the camp with everyone in it. And there were some other rumors that I talk about in my, in my book. What, what, what were the inmates thinking? They were so far gone and so desperate. And it was very unlike the Nazis to hand over any anyone. So, yeah. How did that? How did that that handoff uh, actually take place? Was it uh, like a formal surrender, and uh, not of the of the German army, but of maybe? that particular group yes exactly i i describe it in detail in my book but yeah that's exactly what happened it was a formal meeting of german officers and british officers they germans came to the front line with the white flag and and then they had meetings and i talk about it and then they um they said that there were uh cases of typhus in the camp and there was fighting in the area, and that it was international in the international interest of health that um, these typhus cases be dealt with because they were afraid that people would break out of the camp and spread it the disease into the German countryside. So this was one of the reasons that, that it just got totally out of control for the Germans. They couldn't handle it, and of course, when Glenn Hughes came in. When the British Army came in, they found not 1,500 typhus cases, but 15 times that number. So, now the book, it, yeah. the book is yeah. getting a lot of uh, a lot of praise for uh, combining narrative type storytelling um, in this um, in describing the the suffering of Nazi victims, the overwhelming presence of death at at Bergen-Belsen, and characters who exemplify the human capacity for fortitude, um, how um, when you were going through his his papers and and war diaries and so on, um, now do I have this right that he ended up testifying at the at the Nuremberg trial? So he didn't testify at the Nuremberg trial, but he testified at the trial immediately preceding the Nuremberg trial, which was called the Belzen trial. And that was actually the first international war crimes trial, and he was the first witness. So he really set the tone for the case. So he was the first witness at the first international war crimes trial. Did you? And for that reason alone, yeah, he could be famous. Yeah, you probably. Uh, I, I'm sure you went through his uh, his testimony in your research. Um, did a, a lot of. Uh, how, how do I put this? Um, did that testimony inspire 
some of how you wanted to portray him and the things that he saw and experienced. Yes, I mean, it was really interesting to me that he was called first, and, um, yeah, he, 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 it was, he had a very important role, a very important role in history, being the first person to talk about Nazi atrocities in the courtroom, and to set the, yeah, and we always, we hear about the Nuremberg trials, but we don't hear about the Belgian trial, so I thought he... For that reason alone, almost, he should be lifted into bold relief because he did it very thoughtfully, and he was the first person to talk about what happened. And the Berkin Belsen was the most uh, filmed and most documented of the, all the liberations. The Allied photographers, the British photographers, took over 200 pictures and uh, something like 32 rolls of film and he was the first person to show some of the film at at the at the trial. So um, yeah, and he, and he and the way he did it, the measured tone in which he spoke, and he refused to sit down. He spoke for two days, just standing, out of respect for the martyrs, and yeah, and he just gave so many important details and facts that are in the in the case records. Yeah. It, it's it's an amazing. Uh, both stories are amazing and an interesting way of um, keeping this uh, this history alive. Telling the stories of these two people, your mother and uh, and this doctor. All the horrors of war is the name of the book by Bernice Lerner. Um, Bernice, uh, thanks so much for spending this time with me. I I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Now, obviously, the book is a great place to start, but for people who are interested, are there some some resources that you especially like, and do you have a website? I do have a website. It's BerniceLearner.com. Yeah, I mean, there are great resources out there, If and I cite a lot of them in my book. I think I've, I've... Price has probably covered every book or article written about Bergen Belsen in my book. So that's a place <laughs> to start. Even to look at the notes, uh, I really tried to read everything I could about it. Well, Bernice, thanks so much for yeah. spending this, uh, this time with me, and my best to your mother. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Take care. That was uh, Bernice Lerner, and she is... Um, a senior scholar at Boston University's Center for Character and Social Responsibility. She is also the author of The Triumph of Wounded Souls, Seven Holocaust Survivors' Lives, and a co-editor of Happiness and Virtue Beyond East and West Toward a New Global Responsibility. But uh, her book uh, that we were talking about today is uh, a new book, All the Horrors of War, A Jewish Girl, a British Doctor, and the Liberation of Bergen-Belsen. And with that, we'll uh, move on. We'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Everybody. 
everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen. We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. I guess this hour is a writer and native of New Zealand, now residing in Australia. In 2003, she was introduced to Lolly Sokoloff, who entrusted her with the innermost details of his life during the Holocaust, which uh, became the the basis for an international best-selling novel, debut novel, I should say, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, um, the author is uh, joining me by phone, Heather Morris. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very, very happy to be speaking with you. Heather, before before this book, before you met Lolly Sokoloff, you described yourself as dabbling in writing. <laughs> you were writing screenplays. You'd had one optioned, I think, <laughs> in the U.S., um, Yes. And and this meeting with Lolly Sokoloff was kind of a chance meeting, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. It was a, simply a matter of a friend asking me to have a cup of coffee and me saying yes. And during that coffee, she said to me, I have a friend whose mother has just died and her father has asked him to find somebody to tell a story to. And that person can't be Jewish. She was Jewish. She knew I wasn't. And uh, all her friends, and or the majority of them, and uh, Lally's son, their friends were Jewish. But Lally wanted somebody who wasn't. So I said yes to a cup of coffee, and then I said yes to meeting him. And was there was there a light bulb moment when you went, this, this story absolutely has to be told? Look, it was, and first of all, I was embarrassed to have to admit to Lully how little my small-town New Zealand education had taught me about the Holocaust. Um, I didn't have any friends growing up who I knew to be Jewish, and I was just so ignorant, and that was really embarrassing for me. But on the other hand, it made me the perfect person for Lully. That's That's interesting, because... When I first became aware of your book, although I had heard about the tattoos on on prisoners in uh, World War II prison camps in Germany under the Nazis, it never occurred to me that somebody had the job of doing those tattoos. Yeah. And um, they were actually not done in all the concentration camps. This is the unique thing about them. They're actually only done in Auschwitz, Auschwitz-Birkenau. And and now Auschwitz-Birkenau, I, I see that referred to in your book and um, in relationship to this book. And I always thought those were two separate places. Look, they are. They're four kilometers apart, but Auschwitz is the main camp. And, um, look, I have actually just returned from there less than half an hour ago. I have been back out there this morning with a television crew from Spain. Uh-huh. I'm currently in Krakow. And so Auschwitz was the main camp, and it mostly had 
prisoners who were the Polish people who were rounded up, the intelligentsia, the academics, and put into Auschwitz number one. Now, Birkenau, four kilometers down the road, was a purpose-built death camp. Mm. And that is where Lally and the majority of people... At, at some point, there were up to 90,000 people in that camp. It is massive. And, and sadly, as we know, there was turnover. 1.1 million Jewish people died there, and possibly about another half a million people who were either Roma, Jehovah's Witness, homosexuals, or just academics who the Germans weren't crazy about. In putting this story together... Um, you did a, a, a num. Did you do a number of interviews with Lolly? Did did how long did this take to put all this together? You know, I never actually interviewed him at all. Really? I simply sat with this eighty-seven, eighty-eight-year-old man and let him talk. He could not be interrupted. He had to talk if you did. He growled at me, <laughs> and he would lose the thread of what he was talking about. Ah. So it was very clear from the very first day to sit and listen. And that's what I did, and then I would have to race home to my computer and try and remember what I'd heard. But at no point did I have a pen and paper with me or a recording. He, he wasn't capable of being able to talk in any kind of depth with any distraction and and I had suggested to him about recording him. He just shook his head. No, no. I tell you my story. You write it down. And then you write a book. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that's funny. If only it was that simple, Lally. Now, one of the things that makes this this story, well, there are so many things that make this story interesting, but among them are the facts that he was actually a prisoner of war, but not a prisoner of war, but a prisoner in the camp. And yet he was given mm-hmm. this job. Did he accept this job as a way of basically avoiding the gas chamber? Look, the SS were pretty smart cookies. They had prisoners, Jewish prisoners, doing all their dirty work. All they did was ah. guard them, shoot them, kill them, exterminate them. All the work in the camp was done by Jewish people, from pushing the people into the gas chambers. Really? And so when he was offered the role to be the assistant to the man who was the tattooer, the tattooist at the time, he took it because he was recovering from typhoid, Mm. And he knew he was too weak to go back doing hard labor, not knowing that within a few weeks that man, Pepan, would disappear and he would find himself the tattooist, the tattooist. And, and in his role as the tattooist, of course, no. he, he met the, the love of his life. It seems like an unlikely place, yeah. Heather, for should... a love story to unfold. Absolutely, and uh, to help you come to terms with how unlikely it is, 
the backstory to Lali Sokolov was that this 26-year-old man back in Bratislava in Slovakia had been a playboy for years. He was a real love him and leave him type of character. Huh. And um, always about how he looked and how the girls that he dated and wooed and bedded looked. So for him to hold the arm of an 18-year-old girl dressed in rags and a head shaven, unbathed, look into her eyes and tell me 60 years later, I knew in that second I could never love a mother. Pretty amazing. That is amazing. Did you get a sense that that it was, I, I don't know, the, the intensity of the time and the situation that contributed to that, or would this have happened in a cafe somewhere? Probably not. Gita was from a small town in Slovakia. She wasn't necessarily very worldly. Um, I'm not sure her background lent her to bumping into Lully in a cafe in Bratislava. But you know, the funny thing is, I have actually met many other people now, particularly in Australia, where we had a large number of Holocaust survivors moved to, who have said to me, my mum and dad met in Auschwitz also. And so while I have my one love story, it turns out that there are in fact many others I don't know how many exactly, but we are talking about a death camp. But well, yes, I have met other people who said my mum and dad met in Auschwitz. Well, and that's another uh, important thing to, to point out is they both survived the camp? Yes. And uh, that shouldn't have happened. The odds of anyone surviving there were pretty slim, but for these two people who were for two and a half years clung to each other every chance they could. Lady keeping Gita going with his eternal optimism that we will leave this place. There will come a time when we can live where we want to, be who we want to. And he used to say to her to make her blush and <laughs> make love where we want to. Oh, that's funny. Uh, then where did they go after the war? They got back to Slovakia, not together, of course. Gita was taken out on a death march in the middle of January or towards the end of January. And uh, it was only her bravery in running from that death march and escaping into the forest. Now, I have just driven from Auschwitz to Krakow this morning. It took just over an hour. It took Gita and the three girls she escaped or ran away with it took them six weeks to get to Krakow as they hid in the forest, were hidden by some of the small villages along the way. So unbelievable to think that in the middle of winter, and I'm told winters here are, can be pretty cold, that she survived that death march. Now, on the last day that the Germans held Auschwitz, the 27th of January, 1945, Hours before the Red Army arrived, Lally was put on a train and taken to another camp, Montalvin. So they're separated. But yes, they both made it back to Slovakia, and Lally just knew that she was alive and went looking for her. And having gone to his hometown in Krompaki first, 
to see if his family had survived. He told that only his sister had. Hmm. She said to him, you have to go and find Gita. And how did he even know where to look? Well, he knew to go back to the capital, to Bratislava. Ah. He was told that all the returning displaced people, particularly Jewish people from Slovakia, were just naturally coming in to the capital. Uh, where else could they go? And uh, he did go back there, and he spent days standing on the train station as the trains came in, bringing returning people to their homeland, walking up and down the platform. Every female, hello, were you in Birkenau? Did you know Gita? Getting no, no, no. And then finally somebody, the station master, said to him, go back into town. The Red Cross has set up a processing centre there. You need to go and register that you have come back. And you can have a look and see whether or not Gita's name is on that list and she has come back. So there he was, standing on the back of a little cart on a horse that he had got from his hometown, heading towards the Red Cross station. He is looking for Gita. She's walking towards him and she finds him. And it's a Hollywood ending, I know, and I could not have written it myself. <laughs> I have the version of it, and I have Gita's version of it. And yes, she stepped out in front of that horse when one of her friends pointed out, it's a funny little horse and cart. Look at that man. And it was funny. Oh, that's funny. I, when you took this project on, and, and given the way that, that Lolly Sokoloff told his story to you, did this book kind of write mm-hmm. itself, or was it kind of a massive undertaking? Well, you actually started it as a screenplay. Yes, look, it existed as a screenplay for about 12 years. How stupid was I to think that somebody would want to make a film out of a screenplay written by an unknown person down in Melbourne? <laughs> Very stubborn of me. I'm not normally like that. Um, but in terms of writing it, Lenny couldn't tell a coherent sentence if he tried. He had his linkages of his stories and vignettes were terrible. But I was getting them all down, I was piecing them together, and then, of course, I was doing the research so that I had the factual timetable of what actually was going on in that place so I could marry it together with his stories. And then, of course, my biggest challenge is what do I put in and what do I leave out? Right. Because the story has about 20% of what I know. In, in, uh, and like I say, was this, uh, did this become a massive uh, undertaking uh, to, to flesh this out into uh, the book that it is now? Look, it did because it was essential to me that everything I put in the book I had verified by at least one other source. So professional researchers in, in Europe were purchased and uncovered documents that confirmed who Lenny was, when he was in there, the fact that he was taken into the penal unit for six weeks and beaten within an inch of his life. And where I couldn't get um, documents, because as I was told today by my guide in Auschwitz, 90% of the documents there did get destroyed. 
But then I went looking for other survivors who knew Lully. And I met many in Melbourne and Sydney. And they could confirm what they knew of him in the camp. One lady in particular who was in the block with Gita, her friend, and with her friend for six decades, who was in fact still alive and whose 95th birthday I will go to next month. And so I had these living sources to confirm parts of it. And here's the thing that's got me cranky. Some brilliant aspects of his time there I didn't put in the book because I never had my proof. And now people are contacting me from around the world and giving me that proof that I didn't have. It's quite wonderful and it's quite, you know, mm, wish I had that. <laughs> Writer's remorse. <laughs> Yes. Well, maybe maybe we just do a second edition. Well, there you go. Um, this is. Uh, I actually want to go in two different directions here, but but we'll pick this one first. You're actually uh, you've actually mm-hmm. visited these camps. Yes, that's right. As recently as um, a couple of hours ago. Is. Is it? So being in Krakow, my Spanish publishers had found out I was here and asked if I could send a television crew who wanted to interview me there. Is it kind of, knowing what you know, knowing a little bit about this story from a firsthand perspective, is it kind of, is, is it especially haunting mm-hmm. for you to visit those sites? Oh, absolutely. It doesn't take much for my imagination to put Lady and Gita and Silker and Jacob, the people in my story. It doesn't take much for me to go and stand where I know where they stood and feel the weight of the horror that they had to have lived through to, to walk into the block where Gita would have spent her first few months and see the conditions to walk around the ruins of what was the gypsy camp where Lally lived. Um, yes, it's um, incredibly painful. It's actually quite numbing. But in another sense, I kind of feel closer to him because between us can stand where he stood. Now I meant you mentioned that this has a, kind of a Hollywood ending that you couldn't have imagined yourself. Um, the book is is mm-hmm. considered a novel. Um, do you, do you consider yeah. this part of that that historic novel genre? Are there parts where you've had to fill in the gaps to tell this story in a in a narrative way? Because I was told by my publishers, of course, straight up, you have to write a memoir because that would be the considered way of publishing. Ah. And I, okay, so I enrolled in a memoir um, class and I went for one day. <laughs> and at which point I came back and contacted them and said, no, I will not tell it like that. Maybe it was um, having done my studying and screenwriting to be told I couldn't have conversations and... You can't make up dialogue, and I couldn't even have Gita in it very much in the memoir. 
because of the rules of the memoir being only what that person saw, witnessed, about them. It was going to take out Gita. It was going to take away all my lovely conversations. And so what we ended up with, which is historical fiction and based on a true story, I took Lali's story, his and Gita's. I had the facts and the timetable of what was going on in that place, and I wove the two together. In a memoir, when I was writing about the game of football that Lully played with the SS, he couldn't remember the names of the players. I would have had to call them player one and player two. Oh, yeah, no. But I wasn't having anything like that. I mean, no, they needed names. These people need to be identified if it's not their true name. Who they were is still identified in the book. So hence the um, historical fiction. I have uh, no problem whatsoever with the manner in which I've chosen to tell it. Quite the opposite. Because I think you can feel the pain and the hope and the courage of people that were in that camp. Now, I was I was kind of having a little fun with you and, and the fact that you had described yourself as having dabbled in writing before taking on this project. Um, mm-hmm. Have you fully gotten the bug now? Absolutely, and I must <laughs> go back to that drawer in my desk that's got half a dozen screenplays in it and say, okay, you like me now, anybody want to read another one? Um, we might do that again. Are, are you? Uh, yes, and I'm currently working on the, the next book. And and what will we? Uh, what will you be telling us about in the next book? From the minute Lali said to me one day, "Did I tell you about Silka?" And I said, "No. What about her? Who is she?" He said, "She saved my life." And I said, "I need to know more." And then he moved on, as he would. But I kept coming back to this girl, Silka. And by the end of my speaking with him, and when I started looking into Gita's tape and other people talking about this young girl, Silka, I knew I had to tell her story. She turned 16 in March 1942. In April 1942, she was taken to auschwitz a beautiful young thing, the commandant did. He took a fancy to her. She survived for two and a half years as his well, concubine. Who, whenever he wanted, he, he just came and he took her. She survived, but not for long, because the finger got pointed at her, and she was accused of sleeping with the enemy and sent to a Siberian gulag for 10 years. More about the Tattooist of Auschwitz with author Heather Morris. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation TomSumnerProgram.com the Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com.
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From 
This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about the tattooist of Auschwitz with author Heather Morris. Straight ahead. This beautiful young girl who chose to survive. Nanny called her the bravest person he ever met. Not the bravest woman or girl, but the bravest person. So I have this amazing story of this young girl, young woman who thankfully got to be an old woman. And she also fell in love in the gulag and married a Ukrainian man and lived for decades back in Slovakia. I have this story from people in Slovakia where I was last week and where I will return next week to get more of it. And it's the story of a 16-year-old girl, not a 25-year-old man like Lali, a worldly man who was cunning and was an opportunist. She was an innocent young girl, but she chose to survive. And from the thousands of letters I've got since the book came out, probably half of them all ask me, I need to know more about Silka. So I'm going to give them more. You know, Heather, the way this book is written, it would make an excellent movie. How ironic would it be? if you end up converting this back to a screenplay, or someone does. It's going to happen. In fact, it's actually in the works. Is it really? It won't be a film. Instead, I have, I have um, gone for it to be turned into a miniseries. Really? Four hours, miniseries versus two hours in a feature film. So a production company in London in the U.K., uh, right as we speak, working on it. Now, they haven't taken my screenplay. They have gone and got themselves a professional screenwriter, and I'm very okay with that. <laughs> I wonder. Because I, I am working with her to help her. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So, it, so yes, and the, um, it is hoped that in, in January 2020, the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, that uh, they hope to screen the first episode. Oh, that would be wonderful. Well, best of luck with that. Thank you so much. Heather, um, unfortunately, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I always want to make sure that uh, guests can share with our listeners um, how they can find out more about you and about uh, your future projects and that sort of thing. Do you have a website? Yes, I do. It is my name, and so it's the W, um, just au. Well, Heather, this is an incredible story, and, and you are a wonderful teller of it, and thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, you're very welcome, and thank you for your interest, and hi to everybody in Michigan. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. That was author Heather Morris. She is a writer and native of New Zealand, now residing in Australia. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program, and uh, my my guest this hour. Let me uh, reorient my notes here. Is an award-winning investigative journalist and author. Her new book is, uh, she teamed up with uh, Robbie Weissman to tell his story, Boy from Buchenwald, The True Story of a Holocaust Survivor. And my guest is Susan McClellan. She joins me by phone. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I, I got to ask, I'm, I'm always fascinated by all kinds of uh, memoirs and stories coming out of uh, World War Two, and and to some degree the Holocaust itself, but what put this particular story on your radar, and and how did you end up deciding to team up with Robbie to write his story? I I I met Robbie through a literary agent who knew of my work and how I work with my subjects, and so. The very first moment I connected with Robbie, I just, I knew there was something very special there. I think what really drew me to the story was wanting to write from the perspective of after the Holocaust, where those years that the boys, through Robbie's story, were in France, and how they went from experiencing the worst of humanity to um, the loss of, of everyone, and the sheer magnitude of all the the deaths, the murders, how they translated that into something that allowed them to go on and lead quite meaningful lives, because the vast majority of the Buchenwald boys that went to France did. Um, So that's what really drew me, is that as a young boy um, or a young teenager at that point, what, 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 how was it, how did he get from there to there? How did the, the, now there were four hundred and seventy two quote boys from Buchenwald. Um, how did they get out of uh, Buchenwald, and how did they get dubbed the boys from Buchenwald? So when the American forces liberated uh, Buchenwald concentration camp on April eleventh, nineteen forty five, they discovered the thousand boys under the age of 18 and were shocked actually just shocked and the survival of those boys and many did more than that were killed by the nazis were the results of the underground at buchenwald camp that really created a network of protecting and hiding the boys from the nazis and that's how they ended up surviving and so the old some of the older boys they were protected by the communists at the camp, that the communists were political prisoners. So some of the older boys went back to their Eastern European countries to get involved in communist movements there. But the younger ones of the boys, that included Robbie, um, they languished at the camp for nearly two months. They just sat there. No one knew what to do with them. They were beating each other up. They were stealing food from Weimar. They were real thugs. And uh, it, one of the rabbis with the American um, military called the OSE, which is the Children's Aid Organization that was in France at this point. And the OSE had been rescuing and uh, Jewish children in France during Nazi occupation of that country. 
And that's how the OSA turned their attention to moving uh, several hundred of the boys, the younger ones of the boys, to France in the attempt to, to make them human again. You know, there are so many aspects to this story, and, and if I hop around a little bit, please forgive me, but how did Albert Einstein, okay. how did Albert <laughs> Einstein end up in this story? <laughs> uh, so the OSA, uh, that's the acronym for the organization, was originally, was founded in Russia to help uh, survivors of the pogroms. And then it moved to Germany, and of course, during the Nazi uh, rule of Germany, it wasn't safe there. So it moved to um, uh, France, Paris. Uh, Albert Einstein was one of the patrons and founders of the organization. Okay. Um, can you, without you know, bumping into any spoiler alerts, can you draw a little bit <laughs> of a of a line, of a map between Buchenwald and Canada, where Robbie ended up? Ah, okay. So, um, I mean, I should just preface this, but Buchenwald was where uh, the boys ended up last. So Robbie's uh, camp experience was working at a munitions factory for the Germans through much of the war. He was transported by the Germans to uh, to uh, Buchenwald when the Russians were coming in through the east and the Allies were coming in through the west. Uh, so he was only at Buchenwald a few months, um, but he was in uh, several other camps, including the one attached to the munitions factory where he worked for most of the of, of, of the Holocaust. Um, so in France. Uh, the story sort of starts off with a sort of typical uh, boys, young boys goofing off and running around and but, being silly. And how did they? How did they get to France? I, I, I just I get this impression of these these boys in military trucks being driven to France and then just let loose. <laughs> okay, so the OSA created uh, homes for them. So there was one home okay. that they began, they stayed in, and they organized a train ride over uh, from Buchenwald directly to uh, the, the, the home. And so they were all housed in the same home. And um, I should, would like to say that, and this is crazy, like it's just crazy, but after liberation, these boys have been wearing the same outfits for sometimes months, if not years. And so the Americans and um, and some of the Jewish people who had survived the Holocaust and were older went in search of clothes for the boys, and they found Nazi youth uniforms. So oh, no. many of the boys transported to France were wearing the Nazi youth uniforms. And in fact, the train was pulled over at the beginning because the French thought the Nazis were coming back and were throwing stones at them. So there's very famous pictures of these boys because they wrote with paint. They actually had to spend a night somewhere just resting so that the boys that, that could speak French or, you know, could write in Yiddish. Because remember, some of these boys hadn't been in school for five, six years. They went out and they were writing on the the side of the train, we are orphans from Buchenwald, where are our parents, to identify to the French that they were not Nazis coming back. But they, half of the boys were wearing 
and there's a picture in the book of it, little Nazi youth uniforms. More with investigative journalist and author Susan McClellan straight ahead. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 